to the Real Rural Women's Leadership podcast series. This project is funded through the Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment. It is led by Care Ballon in St. George, Ballon Shire in southwest Queensland in conjunction with a team of researchers led by Dr. Sarah Casey at the University of the Sunshine Coast. The team includes Dr. Gail Crimmins, Dr. Saskia de Klerk and Dr. Karen Hands alongside Professor Jackie Hewitt from Griffith University. This podcast series is about building women's capacity, empowerment, strategic communication, and business leadership skills. This series is eclectic. We interview community and business leaders, entrepreneurs, academics, communication and media experts, an empowerment and confidence leader, and CEOs, the agitators and the advocates. Our hope is that this series might act as an inspiration and information toolkit for others. You can find more information about our project at www.realruralwomensleadership.com. All episodes contain show notes about the guests with links to their stories. So settle in and enjoy the series as together we chat with these remarkable women. Hello, my name is Dr. Karen Hands, and I'm a researcher at the University of the Sunshine Coast. My background is in the arts and creative industries, where among many other things, I frequently toured throughout regional Queensland with events and productions. In the arts and creative industries, we utilise what we have at hand to create new, meaningful products and experiences. So being able to interview women for this podcast who had similarly carved out livelihoods from an idea and the resources available to them was a very important aspect of being involved in this project for me. These stories are inspiring and provide aspiring businesswomen and women leaders with a rich toolkit of strategies and experiences to draw from. In this podcast, I interview Jane Harbison, who is third generation of a Texas farming family. Jane went to boarding school in Toowoomba and embarked on what she perceived as a safe and secure pathway in accounting before completing her Master of Business Administration in New York and working in London. But at the age of 40, she felt that she was not being true to herself and she launched her own creative business, Dream Big for Little Girls. In this podcast, Jane shares why she launched out on her own and what she learned from her own business. She also discusses why she eventually chose to let her business go. This podcast will inspire you to back yourself and not be afraid to fail. Hi, Jane. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Karen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, a pleasure to have you as part of this project. We're really excited to talk to you today. So why don't we get started by you telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, I grew up in a small town called Texas. It's on the New South Wales-Queensland border and my family's still there. I am, gosh, I am third generation and there's a fourth one coming through. So it's lovely to be able to go back to where I grew up and visit every now and then it'd be it'd be sad if I didn't have that that constant in my life so yes I grew up in a little town Texas and then went away to to boarding school I suppose and really haven't lived there since (laughs) okay and after boarding school what did you do at uni oh University was just a Bachelor of Business because I think back then none of us really know what we're supposed to be doing. And a Bachelor of Business, majoring in accountancy, 
was an easy career to understand and and I didn't really know what my options were. I remember when I was at school in those last couple of years, I was called into the headmistress's office and she sat me down with my parents. My parents even had to come from Texas for the interview and said, Jane, are you, are you sure you want to do maths and a science? I think it was chemistry and French. And because you're really good at history and home economics and art, and are you, do you sure you want to spend the next two years doing this? And I said, yes, I do, because I thought that those are the subjects that will get me a good T score and I'll get into a good university and do a great course and have a wonderful career. And, and so the next two years I spent watching my friends do fabulous art projects and home economics projects. <laughs> Well, I was sitting there doing my, my French verbs and, and learning the periodic tables. So I should have listened to her. I should have ventured into something creative. But instead, I went down a, a very classic path of, of business and accountancy. And that, that has served me well. I have spent a lot of my career using that skill as a commercial manager in various industries, but it certainly wasn't something that I that I loved and thrived. So tell us a little bit more about that aspect of your career working as an accountant. Oh gosh, it was pretty varied. When I left university, it was the early 90s, so it was really hard to get a job. And I went... I mean, my background is rural, so I'm very familiar with that space. And so I went to Moree and I ended up working in for transport company. I worked in cotton for many years. When I finished with cotton, I was working in Moree and Gundawindi, and then I moved to Brisbane and worked for a shipping company and a Japanese shipping company. And so I was exporting lots of commodities that I was had just spent the last sort of eight years producing or being involved in producing. And so that was a really interesting, uh, really interesting role. And I ended up being regional marketing manager, I think, for Queensland for that company. And then I got an opportunity to study in the US. I was doing my MBA at the time. And they offered me a position uh, to study at a university in upstate New York. So I jumped at it and finished off my MBA and and then, yes, like many Australians, went and worked in London. <laughs> Fantastic. And so that was still in the commercial accountancy field when you were in London? Yes. And, yes, I was using those skills, but I was also leveraging off completing my MBA too. And so I was working in venture capital mainly in London and... I was working for a, a company that was based in Italy, uh, in Milan. So they had an office in London and they had an office in Belgium. And so we sort of moved around in between those offices. And at that stage, it was they were in primarily investing in tech startups. So that was a big learning curve for me because I didn't know much about tech. But interestingly, a lot of the tech companies were aiming to solve problems around industries that I was involved in shipping the commodities for. So I remember one 
one was trying to automate the process of shipping steel. And because I'd just spent, you know, the last four years, one of one of my big clients was a, a scrap metal exporter. And so I, I just, funnily enough, became very familiar with what, what their product was trying to do. So I did that for a number of years and had an amazing time, got to work in Milan for a while and and then sort of finished, did, did a few years in London and then came back to Sydney. Wow, you've had such a diverse career. That's incredible. But yeah. not where it ends, is it? Oh, <laughs> yes, I took a, took a change of career and I sort of went from accountant to creative. And as I think I mentioned in the beginning of this, it was probably where I should have always been. I reflect on it now that after I finished uni, I think it was about two or three years after I finished uni, the internet was born. So that was 94, 95 here in Australia. And that just exploded the space and the opportunities for creativity. But there's just no way I could have known that leaving school. So I'm, I'm a big believer in just trusting, you know, sticking to your strengths and trusting that opportunities will present themselves. And if I'd done that, I probably would have had <laughs> a very different career path, but I don't regret any of it. You know, it yeah. was all, I've managed to work with some amazing people and in be exposed to some really interesting industries. I think it was in one in Sydney, which live export, I spoke about that previous, briefly, a very controversial industry but an essential one for feeding a large portion of the world. And so I wouldn't have had those experiences as, it, as, an, as a creative. Um, I, I got those roles primarily because I was an accountant uh, and as a commercial manager in that space. But at 40, I just thought, okay, it's time to do something that I really love. And, yeah, I, I decided to invest in the space of creativity and primarily the process of creativity. The process of creative creativity really interests me more so than the outcome, although that's what I'm doing at the moment. So I spent, went and did a graphic design course uh, just an intensive six months mm. and developed a whole lot of products and created a whole lot of products under the banner of Dreaming Big for Little Girls. And all of these products were designed, just stationary products and things designed to evoke joy and freedom. And I created a little character with those and and then I attempted to sell those products. What was the idea behind targeting the young girl market? I it goes back to doing what you love, doing what you love, and being good at it. I think you need both to be successful in it in the world. I think you need to be good at it, and you need to love it in order to sustain it, because you won't be the best at it out of the gate it takes time and so because it takes time you need to be able to be resilient and stick with it and if you're going to stick with it you really need to enjoy it you need to want to get up every day and and persist with it and 
I I didn't do that when I was young. And so I wanted to talk to the girls about valuing that intuition and trusting it. And so and so when you have those two things, when you're good at something and you're and you love it, it it becomes much easier to start solving problems. And that's where creativity comes in. Creativity, as the late Sir Ken Robinson beautifully defines, creativity is the process of original ideas that have value. And so when we talk about add value, that means they solve a problem. And so with these girls tapping into their natural strengths, they can go out into the world and solve problems in new and original ways. So I wanted to start giving them a process to do that. And I also wanted to do it um, before they lost their creativity, and that's why I sort of fell into that 9 to 12-year age age gap. And we did some exciting projects, exciting creative projects, got them thinking about the process that resulted in this outcome of creativity in this this external expression of creativity which we typically understand as art and craft and and videos and that sort of thing so I, yeah i did that for 7 or 8 years under the banner of dreaming big for little girls and it was very rewarding so you did the stationary line, but you also went out to some regions to do some workshops. Mm, mm. So I was running workshops here in Brisbane with a friend of mine, Virginia Bishop, and we ran interior design workshops. And I just ran them out of my home and we would have eight girls at a time. And the idea behind that was giving girls the belief and understanding that they can control their own environment. And I thought, how can I do that in a fun, relatable way? And the bedroom is one of the few things that a girl can has control over. Um, there's not many spaces in the world that a 9- to 12-year-old has, has control over, certainly not in the classroom, usually not in most of the house. You know, they've got to keep it tidy or whatever. So their bedroom is one of their, their spaces that they can influence, have an influence over. And so I thought, why don't we get them to design a space around a feeling word? So they, I got them to think about how they want to feel in that space. And they had to think about that before they came to the workshop. And that was the word that we placed in the centre of the board. And then we taught them about space and texture and tone and colour and all of those choices that they made to fill their board had to be linked back to how they want to feel in that state. And so then we talked about just briefly at the end when they created these beautiful boards. Gosh, oh, so creative. And the other thing we did too was we got them to go out into the garden and grab something living because a room should always have something living in it other than yourself. <laughs> and those just brought the boards to life. And so at the end of that process, it was about understanding that, well, if you can have an influence over this small space, take that experience out into the world and be, be mindful that you can influence who you surround yourself with and the spaces that you put yourself in. 
So that was that was a beautiful project that we did at home. And then I took it out to the bush and I bought some wonderful artisans, some amazing videographers, filmmakers, photographers and stylists and interior designers and we ran a, a full-day, two-day event and uh, they did their board as as we did here and then I got them to flip it and we got them to take a bedroom into the bush. So they took their their internal designs outside and they created this beautiful bedroom scene in the middle of a paddock and it was just beautiful. I would love a magazine to pick up the images because I think it's a beautiful story. But anyway, that's for, that's for another day. It's such an inspirational idea for a business and I can see and hear when you talk about it how much joy that it gave you. What yes. were some challenges, though, that you might have had with that business or the idea? It, yeah, it's... It was a lo- it was a passion project because it wasn't profitable. It and so therefore that put strains on everything. All the projects that we did were pretty yeah out of out of my savings and inheritance almost. And actually, even with the project that I ran in Texas, I approached the federal government, the state government, the local government for grants, and none of those were forthcoming. But I just I just love the concept so much that I ran with it. Certainly the parents paid a, a small fee to for the girls to attend, but that didn't come close to the sort of nearly ten thousand that that project cost. You know, you know, you've got to, I, I am a big believer in paying for the services of artists and artisans. And so I didn't want to renege on that. You know, I wanted to honour that. But those sorts of activities, you can't sustain them when, when they don't pay for themselves. So that was the main reason that we ended up closing Dreaming Big for Little Girls on the 1st of August, my birthday this year. Okay. So what were some of the lessons or legacies that you'll take from that project with you? Yes. I have started two new things and all of them come from the experiences of that first one, which, and the big one is keep your overheads low and stick to your strengths. So I was spending lots of money on maintaining a website, email service providers, managing my social media, all that sort of thing. And it all costs money. And I've decided this time around I'm having none of that. So I have no website. Mm-hmm. I, have, I haven't started any emailing campaigns or anything. So I'm not communicating with anyone except a daily post on Instagram. Okay. and. And I, and that is such a relief to me. You know, I don't have to worry about where the next dollar has to come from. At the moment, I'm just creating and I'm enjoying the process of creating again. It, it became a little bit of, I used to worry about it at night, thinking how am I going to bring in, you know, the, how can I make, keep this going? But I think you have to, even though you have big dreams for something, if it's not working, you have to be prepared to 
let it go. And that's not to say that it's not it's gone forever. It just at the moment I needed to let it go. I've got big priorities with my family and it was taking me away from that. Yeah. How long did it take for you to come to that decision? I hate the word pivot. I think we've overused it a lot recently, but you made a massive pivot, you know, at an age where security and safety is, you know, such a an easy thing to want or something that most yeah. people want in their life. How hard was it for you to realise that perhaps it wasn't working the way you had anticipated? I think I, I had thought about it a lot. I'd thought about it for a couple of years actually before I before I did it. I just I I had to put my family first, you know, and I had to I have an amazing partner, I have an amazing husband, and he is extremely supportive of everything I do. But I can't keep drawing on that without giving back, you know. I need I need to take some responsibility for, you know, for for this. And uh, so I, I, you just have to do it. I, I've had this conversation with many friends too that have been in the same situation and I just say the world doesn't stop because your business closes down. You know, mm. it keeps on spinning. Well, the, the world keeps on spinning and really nothing happened when I stopped, you know. I, if anything, good things happened. And and I can take comfort in in the seven or eight years that I was working on dreaming big for little girls. We did an amazing amazing things, and hopefully there's a number of a handful of girls in there that really took something from that and will do something with it during their lives. And that's that's I can take comfort in that. So it, it's not it's not wasted. And you asked me before what were the what did I learn from the experience? And I think one of the other things was I'm not a very good marketer, you know, I, and it's such an, an important part of running any business. You can have these wonderful ideas, but if no one knows about them, they're going to stay in your computer or in your head or in your desk and they're not going to impact anybody. And so I have to get really comfortable that what, I'm creating next in my my next couple of things. I will bring joy to the world for somebody, and I it's not about me. Yeah, it's it is really hard to, I guess it's self promotion, but also to detach yourself a little bit from the work you're doing in order to market it because you're almost translating it for another audience in another language. I find, mm. and that. And that's why it's, I think it's very clear. You have to be very clear about what you're doing and why you're doing it. So mm. when somebody asks you, say for instance, now I'm I've got I'm doing two new things. One is surface pattern design, but principally with just boys and men in mind. So I've gone from girls to boys, and I collaborate on some of those designs with my six-year-old which I love doing and I am doing this because I my style hopefully is retro simple and classic and hopefully there's somebody else out there that is looking for fabric for boys and men that is retro classic 
and simple. And hopefully somewhere in the world I'm solving somebody's problem, which goes back to being creative again and why we are creative. We're, we're there to solve problems. I've seen your Instagram account and your designs are, are beautiful. How do oh, you monetize that concept? Again, I love this in this industry, this surface pattern design industry is such a, a nurturing, supportive industry and I love being part of it. You are, and I don't want to end up with another garage full of stationery, which I still have in, in, in fabric. You know, I don't, I don't want to build up a, a stock and open a store of fabric. And that's what I love about print-on-demand companies like Spoonflower, Printful. You know, there's a whole lot of Redbubble. There's a whole lot of companies that are print-on-demand. So you upload your design and somebody can order the fabric and they print it and ship it for you. And you uh, never have to worry about any of that and they also have a huge audience they have millions of people looking at their designs and buying from them every day yes you have to be consistent with uploading products and being personable and being current but it just takes a you know a whole lot of the distribution and production out of getting your your product out into the world and so that's the approach that I'm going to take with this. Surface pattern designers can also approach companies directly so they already have an audience they already have a product and they just put your pattern on it so it can be a you know target you know bed linen companies household you know giftwares you know the cups plates you know the the list is endless so a lot of surface pattern designers approach companies to license their products and they just earn a commission from that every time a cup is sold or every time a sheet is sold or a shirt. Wow. So that's how you monetize that, yeah. So the business model has completely flipped from the old retail stock, you being able to sell or even on commission your designs for on demand. Yes, and the other thing I love about that is that it, you're not creating product in this world that is going to end up in landfill. You're going to produce, it's going to be bought and sold because someone, it's going to be made because somebody wants it, wants yeah. it now and wants to use it. It's, so that's the other thing I love about this whole drop shipping, a print-on-demand model. So it's more meaningful as well to the consumer, isn't it? They're, mm. they're you know, because it has resonated with them on some level rather than just yes. getting caught up in the consumerism of a, a Westfield or something like that. Yeah. And the other thing too with platforms like Redbubble and Spoonflower, you can also have a conversation with the designer. So if it's not quite what you want or the colours that you are after, you can approach that and they can bespoke it for you. So... You know, so that is also a lovely connection too between consumer and, and artist as well. Absolutely, more personable. Mm. I imagine creative, it would be nice to know where your work is going or who it's going to as well. Yeah, yeah. So, Jane, would you describe yourself as an entrepreneur? It's an interesting question, isn't it? I, I never, I never do. 
Uh, but if you look at the definition of it, it's a it's a person who starts a business and uh, takes on risk with the intention of making a profit. And so you, I guess that's why, you know, if you're profitable, then you're a successful entrepreneur. And if you're not profitable, then you're not a successful entrepreneur. So probably by definition, I am, but I would never refer to myself as one. Uh, I probably refer to myself as more as to what the the problem I'm solving more so than than an entrepreneur as such. Uh, Yes, I've started two new things. Both, both. I think I'm have a natural talent for or a natural strength for and both I enjoy so I can sustain them both until they build into something that's more sustainable but at the moment as I said I'm keeping all my costs really really low I think my outgoings at the moment my phone which is about you know $30 a month and an email service which I locked into before it it went up which is $19 a month. So those are my two overheads. So I managed to keep it really, really low. And all the other platforms like Instagram and and Canva and those sorts of things, you can just access the, the free versions at, at the moment. Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot. And, and I say thank you to them for providing these platforms free of charge for, for me to use because it's, they – they provide a wonderful avenue for me to share my work. Absolutely. It's so interesting. Mm. We tend to think of entrepreneurs as being wow. big risk takers, but really it, they're risk adverse because mm. you really need to weigh up the risks you're taking and the investment you're making on a personal but also a financial level yep. um, and balance that in your endeavours. So it's mm. interesting. Yes, so, I don't think entrepreneurs aren't risky people. No, they're, they're considered certainly considered. They're they're comfortable with risk, but they've they've thought it through. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, what advice would you give to other women thinking of a career change or maybe launching into their own business, whether that's in the creative realm or perhaps more commercial? I think it has to come back to those the things that I was talking to the girls about. Stick to your strengths. And when you do that too, it keeps your overheads low. So you're not outsourcing all this skill that you have to pay for. Mm-hmm. So stick stick to your strengths. And I love doing, I love doing, I don't know if you've ever done a, a strengths assessment or I do a bias strengths assessment. And I used to take the girls through it all the time. So they could make sure that everything that they do hones in on those top three or top five strengths and when you're deviating from any of those at any time stop just stop and bring yourself back to it because if you don't you will end up regretting it and it the work that you're doing feels heavy and you don't enjoy it and then and then that that impacts on how you show up every day I think so stick to your strengths and Go and do go and do that via strengths assessment if you want to know. Oh, I don't know what my strengths are, and keep your yeah, keep your costs low because you don't want to be going to bed at night worrying about how you're going to pay the bills next day. Again, that just takes the joy out of it. 
And there are so many resources available to us now to do things, to start things really cheaply. And and now more than ever, there's just some amazing opportunities to, to start stuff. The last probably little bit of advice is just start because start. Uh, if, even if it's not perfect, you'll get better at it as, along the way. I My surface pattern design, for example, my first designs, you know, if you flick back, are reasonably, you know, simple and unsophisticated, even though I kind of like that simple, classic, unsophisticated look. The more you do it, the more complex the patterns get. The yeah, the more risk that you take with what how you combine stuff together. The more confidence you get with putting a collection together and pitching it to somebody. But I've been doing this for a year now, and I haven't spoken. I haven't pitched my work to anyone. I'm still just posting my little daily image on Instagram and sharing it with with those that are interested in having a look at it. Uh, and I'm comfortable with that at the moment. And in time, I have plans for it. I I will eventually create a spoon flower store, and I will eventually sell sell that fabric and and promote it. And and maybe eventually I will pitch my work to. I've got some fabulous designs that I think would look awesome on swimmers. So I'd love to pitch it to companies like Speedo or. And yeah, so all in time, you know, I I don't think we can necessarily be in a hurry for for this, but everybody's circumstances are different too. I have the luxury of, of time on my side. Yeah. That's excellent advice. So what does the future look like for you? Other than my my side passion, which is which is designing fabric, I've started a business called Alumni Made Simple. And I do that because of my work that I've been doing with schools over the last 15 years. I've been able to give back to schools at a governance level. Again, you know, it comes back to that accounting base I use when I sit around a boardroom table governing governing independent schools. Mm-hmm. And I find it really rewarding. I enjoy the people I work with. They're, we're all volunteers that sit around that table. But it's such an important thing to try and get right. You know, it's the educating our our next change makers. Mm-hmm. And and so I, we all take the role very seriously. But in that time, I've seen the work that. What happens after school is the school alumni, and I think those community connections are increasingly important for these the kids that are coming through at the moment, and so they don't feel lost uh, and al- alone and wondering what do I do next. There's this there's this continued powerful network, and I just thought that alumni could be doing this differently. They could be doing it better. So I've spent the last year, a couple of years, developing a framework in order to do that. And so when the schools are engaging with their community, it's an enjoyable, purposeful experience. And the community is engaged and they want to come to the events and being part of their school alumni is an essential part of those people thriving in life. And so I've just started to work with a number of schools in rolling up that that program. And eventually, I'll at the moment, it's a one-on-one workshop 
and mm-hmm. face-to-face. So in that model, that's not scalable. But I eventually will probably develop the framework into a workshop that lots of schools can come to all at once mm-hmm. and then potentially an online program of which and potentially a membership. And and uh, that then becomes a recurring revenue that uh, you, you know, it, it's a model that I've seen work time and time again. And it's also a model that I really like for school alumni as well. Yeah. That's a membership model. Yeah. And, yeah, so that's, that's where it will be in five years' time, I have no idea. But that's, that's the long-term plan. Certainly both things have a recurring revenue model built into yeah. them that don't require me to show up nine to five, five days a week. It's just not practical with a six-year-old. Mm. And, I, and I don't want to do that either. And though both projects speak really strongly to your personal values as well, I think, like creativity and community building. Yes, yeah, and around bringing joy and joy and freedom into, into the world. Fantastic. Jane, where can we go and have a look at your beautiful designs on Instagram? Oh, Jane Harbison Design A. Excellent. And my alumni made simple is just a LinkedIn. Again, I've kept it really simple. I've got a two-page PDF there that people can download. And the conversation begins from there. So, again, a free platform. Keep it really simple. Thank you so much for talking to us, Jane. Thank you, Karen. It's lovely. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Rural Women's Leadership podcast series. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd be delighted if you would take a couple of minutes to rate and review our podcast on your chosen listening platform. If you'd like to learn more about this series or get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so via our website at www.realruralwomensleadership.com, where you'll also find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram accounts. Thanks again for listening.